The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Brothers and sisters, we are gathering this morning to hear a word from the Lord. That word comes from Isaiah 41, the entire chapter, and the first nine verses of chapter 42. And I'm going to read those last nine verses of chapter 42 Uh, Now, so please hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He will, thus says the Lord, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, you have gathered us here together for this very purpose, to be with you and to hear from you and to be sent out into the world as your people. Would you work that purpose powerfully among us? in these moments together. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Have you ever gone someplace and discovered that they use a word there differently than you do? I have had this experience when I first moved to South Memphis and I discovered that the phrase, in a minute, does not refer to a 60-second period of time in South Memphis, nor does it refer to a short period of time, but rather to an undisclosed, lengthy period of time, as in the expression, I haven't seen him in a minute. Now, it took a while before I got used to using that phrase myself the way that it was used in this new place that I had arrived in. A word like that in our world is justice. Justice is everywhere. It's everywhere. Justice is something we all deep down desire. Every child has a memory about that first time they discovered the world is unfair. And for many of us, we feel that we've spent our entire lives in the shadow of justice's absence. But when you use the word justice, you discover it means different things to different people. It's a dividing word. It's a word that sends people back into their respective corners, heading for their different camps. And if our nation, in some ways, is engaged in this long discussion about what does justice mean and how ought we to pursue it, 
those divisions run right through the church as well. Well, just as when I was trying to figure out how to use the phrase a minute in a new way when I moved to South Memphis, and the only way to learn how to use that phrase appropriately was to spend more time there, I want to suggest to you that God has invited us to the strange place of Scripture this morning to enter the world of the Bible and to discover how this language works there. In Isaiah 40, God had announced an unimaginable comfort and he had promised to catch his people up in a generous kingdom. And in 41 and 42, we discover that justice is at the heart of the comfort that God offers and at the center of the kingdom to which he is inviting us. In fact, if we were to have a headline for these uh, portions of Scripture that we're studying this morning, I would suggest to you that our headline would be this. Our just king delivers the justice we all desire and restores us to the justice job description we were designed for. Our just king delivers the justice that all of us desire and restores us to the justice job description we were designed for. And what I want to do is unpack that headline a bit by looking closely at God's Word. And we're going to see a number of things. First, we're going to see that justice is at the heart of who God is and what God does. Justice is at the heart of who God is and what He does. Justice is in the first line of God's Facebook bio. Justice is at the key to understanding His Enneagram number. Okay, And if it's at the center of His character of understanding who He is, it's also at the center of understanding what he does. Justice is in that first bullet on, on God's resume. Uh, a few years ago, about 10 years into our marriage, Rebecca and I did this uh, marriage building exercise where we tried to sum up the other person's personality in one word. Rebecca instantly said, you, passionate. 10 years she spent with me, that's what she's come up with, passionate. A couple weeks later, I was teaching a group of students at the college who had known me for like 10 minutes. And I was like, guys, if you had one word to describe me, what would it be? And like three or four of them were like, passionate. It took them 10 minutes to figure out what my wife is still dealing with 10 years later. And what our text shows us is if you spend 10 minutes with God, you are confronted by his justice. And if you spend 10,000 years with him, you'll be saying the same word to describe who he is and what he does. That's why you prick this text and it bleeds justice. In 41.1, God calls together the nations for justice. In 41.10, he upholds his people by his righteous or just hand. In 42, when he describes the servant that he will send, that servant establishes justice, we are told, three times in just four verses. Justice is who God is and what God does for Isaiah. And this is true across all of Scripture. It's true in the Psalms. The Lord loves Righteousness and justice, Psalm 33. And as we recited a minute ago, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Justice is at the center of who God is and at the center of what he does. But secondly, we see that the justice that God is about, the justice that the king delivers is the justice we all long for. The justice the king delivers is the justice we all long for. In chapter 40, verse 27, Israel has despaired because they don't think that God will bring them justice. 
In 42, 1 through 4, the nations are crying out for justice. And when both Israel and the nations receive justice from God, in 42.10, the response is that the nations and Israel alike sing a new song of praise. This is the kind of justice that everybody is dying for. Which is good news, but it's worth pausing and exploring why that's kind of weird to us. I mean, why is justice such good news for the nations? Why is justice such good news for God's people? I mean, for most of us, the main way we think about justice is about getting what you deserve. And while that certainly seems to be included in the idea, it's not clear to me why getting what you deserve is good news. Particularly if you're Israel, and even more so if you're the nations. In fact, if you think that justice is primarily getting what you deserve, then God's justice is primarily a problem to be solved, which is, I expect, primarily how we think about it in the church. God's justice is something to be overcome. And maybe that's also why in the world we associate this just God with an angry, wrathful deity quick to give us the judgment that we've surely earned for ourselves. So we got to ask, why is this justice such good news? Well, let's look at what the text says about this kind of justice. It shows us that this kind of justice is the kind of justice that hears the cries of the poor and the broken ones. Isaiah 41, 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. And I will make springs flow in desert places to give them something to drink. This justice doesn't just hear the cries of the poor and needy ones. It delivers transformation and healing. What does justice do in the text? It brings prisoners out of prison. It brings those who are dwelling in darkness out into the light. More, this justice doesn't just hear the cries of the poor and bring healing. It offers the entire world a generous way of life. That's why the nations aren't just excitedly waiting, wringing their, their hands, desiring for God's justice. They're also waiting, wringing their hands, longing for God's law. Now that sounds really strange to us until we remember what God's law in the Old Testament is all about. God's law is about giving God's generous, just, righteous way to ransom slaves. And so it includes things like giving those ransom slaves the ancient Near Eastern equivalent to 40 acres and a mule and the year of Jubilee, which makes sure you can never lose those acres. It's the kind of law that says the widow and the orphan will not be taken advantage of. They'll be cared for. It's the kind of law that says immigrants and other refugee slaves, if they get here, they'll be provided for. It's the kind of law that gives the world the first six-day work week instead of a seven-day work week. The first law that gives the world everybody universal paid vacation. No wonder people would want that kind of just law. That sounded like good news back then. Sounds like good news today. Because the cry of our hearts for justice, we know deep down the cries of our hearts and the cries in the streets and in protests and in slogans aren't just for getting what we're due. They're longing for a world that is more like what we sense it's supposed to be. And that's what God's law was always intended to give. And so, of course, the nations are waiting with joy for justice like that. And this justice is a justice that leads people back into relationship with their God. 
And so the text says again and again, I will do this so that they will know me. And our text ends with this declaration that God brings justice from sea to shore because he is the Lord, that is his name, and he will not give his glory to another. In other words, this is justice that does not liberate us and then leave us to our own devices. This is justice that liberates us and then leads us to the foot of the king for whose service we were designed. No wonder justice, as Isaiah conceives of it, is such good news. No wonder God's people are waiting for it. No wonder the nations are waiting for it because this kind of justice is not primarily or ultimately or exclusively about getting what you deserve. It is primarily understood, as John Goldingay, an Old Testament professor, puts it, as the faithful exercise of power in community. And if justice is primarily about the faithful exercise of power in community, the good news of the text is that God has that kind of justice at the heart of his character and the top of his job description, and that means that he is faithfully bringing divine power to the relentless work of setting this world to right. Isn't that good news? Nay, great news that the king of kings who holds all power in his hands is bringing justice with might. And we note also in our text that this mighty king brings this justice with power, but also with unimaginable gentleness. Oh yes, he brings justice, but as he does, a bruised blade of grass he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. All the kings, present and past, who've claimed to bring justice have claimed to bring justice by smashing everything that stands in their way. But this king, we're told, has more power than the world's largest nuclear arsenal and his pinky finger, and yet deploys that power by protecting bent blades of grass. If that smoldering wick image doesn't do anything for you, remember the last time you were at a kid's birthday party and you saw that panicking parent light the candles in the kitchen and then try to get them to the table? It's a disaster because as soon as they're lit, you have to do this like crazy walk thing where you're like defending the birthday candles from being puffed out by even the least bit of air. Our text gives us the emperor of all things defending the flickering birthday candles of his weakest people. Who doesn't want a justice like that? Who doesn't long for power exercised like that? So justice at the heart of God is, who God is, to the top of his job description, it is the justice we all desire deep down in our bones. But third, the just king does deliver judgment against our idols. There is judgment here. There is the kind of justice that includes judgment here, and it's against the idols, and especially the false gods and those who cling to them. So chapter 41 includes a series, you should go read it this afternoon, of, of God relentlessly mocking the gods of the nations. Why? Because they can't deliver. 
They can't tell you what's going to happen. They can't work history out of the power of their hands for the good of their people. In fact, in fact, instead of these false gods strengthening the hands of those who worship them, the text shows us, these false gods have to be strengthened by the hands of those who worship them. And so God calls these gods together and those who persist in clinging to them and says, yes, I will bring judgment on you. Behold, the Lord says in 41.11, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. This is complicated. The justice that is good news for the nations and for Israel is also dangerous bad news if they persist in their idolatry. Why? Why this judgment? I think the key is recognizing that while God promises to deliver the justice we desire and were designed for, the false gods make those same justice promises, but what they deliver is injustice. I think God brings justice on the idols because they are the ones that drive the injustice of our world. Why do idols drive injustice? What does the text show us about that? Well, it shows us first that because the justice that we desire for is only found in our God, when we turn away from that God, we don't stop longing for justice but we pursue it cut off from the only source of that justice. And we are like people who are trying to build ever better microwaves, having shut off the electricity to the house. We build and we invest and we create seeking a justice that we have ensured we will not find because we have turned away from the only one who can deliver the justice we desire and were designed for. And we know that. We know that deep down. And so cut off from the source of true justice, left alone with the idols of our own making, we fall victim to fear. This is a text before us. It's all about justice. But it's not surprising that over and over again the text says, do not fear. Why? Because when we are separated from God as the source of true justice... We are not only subject to injustice, but we are suffering from fear. And I want to suggest to you that fear is what stands at the back of most human injustice. Why do we do injustice to one another even when we all long for justice? A lot of times it's because of fear. It's because I am afraid. It's because I feel that I am not safe, that I am insecure, that no one has my back, that no one's looking out for me, that it's a dog-eat-dog-eat-dog-eat world, and if I'm going to get what's mine, I'm going to have to take it however I can. And so terrified in a broken world that we will suffer injustice, we perpetuate it against our neighbors in order to try to get the security and peace and prosperity that we so desperately long for. And so God knows, without a shadow of a doubt, that if we worship these false gods, we will perpetuate the injustice that his kingdom stands against. In other words, to deliver the justice that we long for, God's got to devastate 
the idols. And if we cling to them, we put ourselves in the way of God's just, devastating judgment. That is the key, I think, to understanding why this justice is both what we long for and a death sentence if we persist in clinging to our idolatrous ways. And so we see that God's justice is who he is, it's what he does. The justice that characterizes his life and his job description is the justice we so long for. But it includes this judgment against the false gods. But fourth and finally, we see that the just king restores us to our justice job description we were designed for. The just king restores us to our justice job description that we were designed for. Look at 42, 1 through 9, the passage that we read. How does God bring justice? He sends a servant. And this servant is filled with God's own spirit, God's character, and God's power, and God's mission. God's soul delights in this servant. This servant is the one who establishes justice from sea to sea. This servant is the one who offers the good law to the people. This servant is the one who is a covenant to the nations, who draws the nations in so that they might experience God's salvation. This servant is the one who liberates prisoners and captives and the poor and the oppressed yet with all the gentleness of one who would guard those smoldering wicks and broken blades of grass. This servant is the one through whom God will set up justice. And who might this servant be? Not, at first, exactly who you might think if you've been in Sunday school a long time. I know this is the point where I'm supposed to turn to Jesus. I'm going to get there. But it's actually worth noting that Isaiah's first listeners, when they heard about this justice-bringing servant, would have thought, Oh yeah, that's supposed to be us. Why do I say that? Well, already in chapter 41, before this point, God has described Israel as my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. The offspring of Abraham, my friend or beloved. In other words, God's already told him who the servant is. People of God, the servant is you. And in fact, every good Israelite knows that their ancestor, Father Abraham, was called for a very specific purpose, to bring God's blessing to the nations. And here we see God's servant bringing blessing to the nations. And every good Israelite knew that the way that God's servant was going to bring blessing to the nations was by doing justice. That may surprise us, but it's right there in Genesis 18, 19. Why have I chosen Abraham, God says? I have chosen him so he may teach his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that I might bring about for him all that I have promised. In other words, Israel knew we are the servant of God. We are chosen to be a blessing. We are a blessing by doing justice. And they knew that that's why they'd been given a just law. And they knew that their justice was supposed to be just like God's justice, the faithful exercise of power in community. That's why then they told the story about Job who clothed himself in justice. They saw justice being a father to the fatherless, causing the widow's heart to sing, giving sight to the blind, being feet for the lame, going to court on behalf of the immigrant, smashing the teeth of the oppressor and snatching their victims from their jaws. Israel knew that was their job description. That was supposed to be at the center of their character, and that's how they were going to be a means of blessing to the world. 
So they're the servant, easy peasy. Well, not quite. Because every Israelite by now also knows that they've utterly failed at this responsibility. I mean, we've been told that for however many, 40 chapters. Go read chapter five. I came looking for justice and righteousness from my people. I found injustice and bloodshed. And so the text not only draws our attention to our job description, it draws our attention to where we failed in that job description. And by drawing our attention to how we failed that job description, it draws our attention to what is God going to do about it. And that's why when Israel, like all humanity, proves faithless to their justice job description, God sends Jesus, the faithful Israelite, who exercises justice and brings it to victory. That's why when the gospel writers tell the story of God becoming human, they say, this God came to be one of us and to do the justice job description that we were designed for and that we had utterly failed. It's why the gospel writers quote this very passage. Matthew looks at Jesus healing the sick and driving out demons and lifting up the poor and standing against religious authorities. He says, all this is to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah. Behold my servant, filled by my spirit. He will bring justice to victory. In him the nations will put their hope. The consistent witness of Scripture is that where we have failed, God has come himself to live out as a human the success we were designed for. But brothers and sisters, don't miss it. The story is not God called human beings to be his faithful, just servants. We failed. Jesus came as a human to fulfill the faithful, just service thing and to get us off the hook. That is not the story. That is not the story. The story is God called us to be his faithful, justice servants. We failed. God came to be the faithful, just servant so that he might restore you as his servant people who have justice at the heart of your character and at the top of your job description. Jesus brought justice to victory not by getting you out of it, but by restoring you to it. That's the good news of the gospel, that the king of kings has not given up on his project to rule the world in justice through you. But he has made good on that project by sending his son so that you and I can be restored to our just identity and our just job description. So the just king brings the justice we desire, but he also restores us to the justice job description we were designed for. How in the world do we hear this message and receive it today? Very briefly, three things. First, if King Jesus is the only God who can bring the justice we were desiring and restore us to the job description we were designed for, turn to him and worship him today. The first response to this text is to look at our unjust, broken world and say, oh, that we would have a Savior and recognize that we do have a Savior and to turn to him, to worship him, to come to this table this morning and sit at it and say, this is my king. This is my God, he who brings justice unto victory. And I will worship him with all of my heart and with all my soul and with all of my strength. It is to look on him as the king apart from whom there is no justice 
but in whom there is the final justice we have always desired. Worship him. Secondly, worship him and live lives free from fear. When we know that our just king is delivering the justice we desire and restoring us the justice job description we're designed for, we can live free from fear. When can we live free from fear? When we are suffering injustice ourselves. When another individual or another system is unfaithfully exercising power against us. We can stand up under it and we can speak out against it. And we can live in hope in the midst of it because we know that it is injustice that lasts for the night, but it is justice that comes in the morning, finally and forever with our king. Injustice does, it has lots of power. We know that. It has lots of power against everybody knows that. What the text reminds us is that when we come to this table, we remember that the final power lies in the hands of our just king. And so the terror of injustice is undermined. And we are free to live without fear. We can also live without fear, though, when we are tempted to injustice ourselves. When we are tempted to use our power, either individually or in the structures and systems of our world, to get our good at the expense of our neighbor. That's injustice. It's driven by our fear. And we can say no to it. We can say, I don't have to cling to these patterns and practices of injustice and taking and selfishness and violence because I don't need them. Because I have a king who knows what I need. And what I need is justice and he's promised to bring it to victory in my life and in my world. How will God's people, there's so much to work out here, but how shall God's people live as a witness of justice in the world? Only if we give up the fear that I bet if you look at your life is driving a lot of what you do. Because I know when I look at my life, it's driving an awful lot of what I do. And so when we worship the just king, we are freed to live the kind of fearless lives that stand up and against injustice and refuse to use it ourselves. But thirdly and finally, we go out and we live restored to our just job descriptions. If you have the Spirit of God this morning, brothers and sisters, the same Spirit that was on Jesus that enabled him to bring justice to victory is on you and for the exact same purpose. So the life of the church, the mission of the church, one aspect of it is for us to go out in the strength of God, in line with his just law, to seek to do justice wherever we go. And again, the justice we're seeking to do is about the faithful use of power in community. So how do we do it? Well, in the power of God, we look at our lives and we say, where do I have power? And then we say, who are the bruised reeds and broken blades of grass in my life? And how do I faithfully use the power that God has given me to lift up the broken reeds and bruised grass and to defend them? That's gonna look differently. Some of you kids are on playgrounds and in lunchrooms that are like little cesspools of injustice and bullying. How do you have power to use your power to defend the broken blades of grass and the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks? Some of you are in neighborhoods that are cesspools of bullying and injustice and unkindness, and you don't have all the power, but you got some. How do you use that power 
to lift up and defend the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks in line with God's law. Some of you at work have enormous power to attend to the smoldering wicks and the bruised reeds in your hospital hallway, on the assembly line next to you, in your classroom, your colleagues in the office, the people who work for you and above you. Everywhere you go, God has given you power precisely for this purpose that you might use it for the sake of the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks. So do so. And as you do so, you're going to run into the systems and the structures, the political structures, the economic structures, the educational structures, the cultural structures. And here too, the goal is the same, that we would join God in our justice job description because he has restored us for that work. Now, when we seek justice structurally and in the world, we are seeking to move towards a justice that only God can bring in a world that rejects God. And that means we're often going to run into some complicated places. We're not always going to agree on how to do that because we're learning how to fight for a flawless divine justice in a world that doesn't accept the rule of the king. And that's fine. That's okay. We can do that with love and charity and grace. But only if we remember that when we go out, when we go out to do the justice we were designed for, we are living out the job description given to us directly by God. So brothers and sisters this morning, let us join our just king at the table. Let us receive his promise to bring the full, rescuing, liberating, loving, healing justice that we have always desired. And then let us pour out prayers to him that he would equip us and empower us to go out and live lives characterized by his just character and participating in his just job description, freed from fear, freed from anxiety, knowing that the success The victory of justice does not reside with us, but with our King, and He is on His way. Let us pray. Jesus, we gather this morning to Your feet and ask that You would deliver the justice that we long for and restore us by Your Spirit to the justice job description we are designed for. We ask all these things in Your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the just King wants all of us, including our money. So let us continue to worship this just king by joyfully giving tithes and offerings to him. If you are not here physically with us, you can do that by texting downtown church to 73256. And if you are here with us, there are green buckets on both exits where you can give your gifts to King Jesus. And let's continue in worship together.